Matthew chapter 5. Read the verses, a little bit of review, and then we'll cover some new territory. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, we'll read down to verse 48. You've heard that it's been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them who love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the tax collectors the same. And if ye you greet your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the heathen so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Jesus is covering the last of a series of six subjects and the false teaching and false inferences that were made by the scribes and the Pharisees. The common teaching during the day, scribes and the Pharisees taught that you could make a differentiation between people. That was actually encouraged. Hence, limited love was condoned. And actually hating your enemies was condoned. And so this hateful attitude was condoned by the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus, in his correction of that false interpretation and false inference that was made by the scribes and the Pharisees, said that there should be no differentiation between people. He's actually discouraging that. And he's teaching that there ought to be an unlimited loving attitude that we have towards everyone. And, of course, we spoke about the love and God's love and sending Christ to die for sinners. What we're going to cover today starts in verse 45, that ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust, and so, given those first two points, that the scribes and the Pharisees were condoning and teaching a differentiation between people, and Jesus was discouraging that, there's a foundation for no differentiation. What is the foundation? What is it, is the reason behind why we should treat everyone equally? And he gives it to us in verse 45. That our Father in heaven causes his Son, the sun in the sky, to shine on the evil and on the good. And so he talks about God in heaven being our Father. Now that was not something that was stressed in the Old Testament. This is a relationship that is somewhat new in nature. It was always there, but it was never stressed in the Old Testament. It is implying a new relationship that we have through Christ where God in heaven, the creator of the universe, is our Father. It's appropriate to talk about this being that it's Father's Day. So to the believer, God is our Father, but to the unbeliever, he is just God. And notice that that God... Our Father causes His Son to shine. Now, that sun, which we see in the sky, and boys, on a nice sunny day, it's nice to see that. It's nice for the flowers, right, Dee? Some of them. But to see that sun up in the sky, that's God's Son. It's His by creation. And it's his by the fact that he regulates it, so he possesses it, he created it, he possesses it, and he controls it. And notice 
It says, He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. It's not just that it's shining, not just that he makes it to shine, but he causes it to shine on the evil and the good. And he's doing that due to his love. Notice the designations of the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. That corresponds to the neighbor enemy designation in the previous verses. They also show conduct, which is the just and the unjust, and character, the good and the evil. What is interesting here is in the Greek language, the definite article is absent, which points to, or we could say stresses, the character of the ones that God shows his love to in this way. So the character is what is being stressed. Also notice that in the first pair, the evil are mentioned first, and in the second pair, the good are mentioned first, which in the Greek is a characteristic way to lay stress on the marvelous nature of God's love in showing no discrimination whatsoever. In other words, the emphasis does not fall on one category over the other or on one category of people versus the other. And so the order is switched. Now, the distinction between unjust, just, evil, good should not be stressed here. The idea is that God gives to those who are faithful to him and he gives to those who are his enemies. God does not limit, and we have to understand we're talking about his temporal blessings here. God does not limit his temporal blessings, but he gives to those who hate him and curse him. In other words, we could sum it up this way, God is no respecter of persons with his temporal blessings. He gives even to people who we would think do not deserve it. Then it says, in relation to, after talking about the Son, the Father in heaven causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. You know, there's an interesting verse in Scripture. It's Amos chapter 4 and verse 7. It says this, I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, that part withered. And we get from that verse that God is the one who controls the rain. God is the one who determines where and when and for how long it will rain. And he will even hold it back in judgment or for any other reasons that he deems necessary. I remember getting into a discussion with someone who did not accept the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I said to him, do you think that a verse like this in Amos chapter 4, verse 7, where it says that God controls every single raindrop, basically is what it's saying, but he will not control or be sovereign over salvation? He's got another thing coming. God does not just send the rain. He sends it on the just, on the unjust, alike. And again, that due to his love. And remember, this is the foundation for why we need to be doing what we should be doing in verse 44. It's the foundation. It's the reason. Both examples of the sun and the rain and the way Jesus states it causes us to look beyond the sun, to look beyond the rain, to look beyond the action to the one who is causing that action. And the reason for it, his goodness and his love. Now these, these are chief providential blessings, chief temporal blessings due to the common grace of 
of God. So these two examples, the sun and the rain, show that God's general love, now keep in mind, we're talking about God's general love for all mankind here. We're not talking about God's redemptive love. There is a sense in which we can say that God loves everyone, for they are his creation. That is the general love of God. That love, the general love of God, is without discrimination. It makes no differentiation between just and unjust, good or evil, neighbor or enemy. It extends to the whole of God's creation. God gives good gifts indiscriminately. Now I can go through numerous scriptural examples. I'll probably just mention them here because I want to try to finish this section today. But think about Ishmael. God said to Abraham, I have heard you. I will bless him. He will become a mighty nation as well. What about Potiphar? Joseph becomes part of his servant staff, if you would, and the Bible says that God blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. What about Nineveh? God said to Jonah at the very end of that book, should I not spare that great city, Nineveh, in which there are 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and hopefully you don't miss this, and much cattle. God says. Genesis 17:20, Genesis 39:5, Psalm 36, 6, Psalm 145:9, Jonah 4, 10 through 11, the scriptures that I just mentioned. Mark 8:2, Luke 6, 35 to 36, Acts 14, 16 to 17, Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God brings people to repentance. 1 Timothy 4.10, interesting verse, very hard to, to, uh, to interpret for somebody who holds to the sovereignty of God and salvation, but in some sense, Christ is the Savior of all men. I, I can't explain it, but he is the Savior of all men, not in a redemptive sense, because if he was, then everybody would be saved. But there is a sense in which Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, 1 Timothy 4.10. Those verses that I just mentioned are speaking of God's general love to his creation, to all of mankind. But then there is God's specific, redemptive, and covenant love for his people. The love of God towards his enemies is not the same as God's love for his friends, for his people. Genesis 17, 21, Psalm 103, 17 to 18. Psalm 147:20, Matthew 20:16, Luke 12:32, Romans chapter 8, basically the whole chapter. These two examples, God's general love, God's redemptive love, show that God in his providence bears with sinners, even the non-elect, that's his general love. And he's long-suffering towards them. And the rain and the sun shows that he bestows many favors and temporary blessings on them. And he does so without discrimination. He does not make a differentiation between people in his temporal blessings, in his common grace. that ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth his rain on the just and the unjust. It says here that we may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. That so that there, that ye may be, so that ye may be the sons of your Father which is in heaven. That so that shows, it's, it's actually a purpose clause. A purpose clause. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 says, Therefore, be followers of God or imitators of God as dear children 
and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 is telling us that we, as God's children, need to imitate our Father. I have a grandson that I don't get to see a lot. He's in Pennsylvania right now. His name is E.J., Emerson James. And though Jack, who is my brother-in-law, is not his father, he, E.J., is imitating Jack. Now Jack, he's a preacher, but he, when he walks around, he has his hands behind his back, and he'll just walk and think and talk. And EJ has seen that. And the last time I went to see my daughter at EJ, EJ was doing that as he walked through the living room. Right? He was imitating Jack, and he probably didn't even realize it. We, according to Scripture, are to be imitators of God as dear children. Jesus said it this way to his disciples in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Imitators of God as dear children. Now yesterday I was scrolling through Facebook, and I don't always look at everything that is there, and a picture caught my attention. I said, man, that looks like Larry. So I had to back up. You posted a picture of your father on Facebook, didn't you? Yeah. Man, that looks like Larry. Sure enough, as I looked at it, it was Larry, and he had a picture of his father on there. There was a physical resemblance. You could see it. Proof of sonship is resemblance, but not in the spiritual, uh, in the spiritual realm. It's not a physical resemblance. In the spiritual realm, it's a, it's a resemblance in nature. The Semitic understanding of when someone said that, that we can tell he is your son, it wasn't about that he looked like his father. It's that he acted like his father. There was a resemblance in nature. Are you like your father in some ways, Larry? <laughs> The Bible speaks about sonship and that we are to resemble our Father in heaven. It's talking about the Semitic understanding, and that is in nature. It means we will be like God. We will be godlike in our conduct, in our nature. This is how we manifest ourselves as a son of God. Our position in the kingdom of God is so important to us that this is how we will act. We will act like our Father. We will have the same nature as our Father. In fact, in salvation, his nature has been planted in us, and we are to live that out day by day. And so that's what Jesus is saying, that ye may be the sons of your Father. Then it gives two examples. He causes his sun to shine. He causes his rain to pour on the just and the unjust alike the good and the evil. There is no neighbor and enemy to us. No differentiation between people. Now, this is how a son of the Father in heaven acts. It is natural for a son of God to do this because he is like his father. This is not how one becomes a son. Keep that in mind. You don't become a son by doing these things. It is evidence Evidence that we are a child of God, that we are a son of God. And notice it is not become sons, but be sons. No, we are already sons, as this type of attitude and behavior will prove. Christ is contrasting us with the others, those of the world. What do ye more than these others, as we'll see in the verses that follow? And so this is a purpose clause that gives the, the grounds for the commandment in verse 44. It's actually the positive basis for the command. Now what is here, though, is uh, 
what is present here in this verse is the tension that exists between the promise of future full sonship and the demand for and recognition of the con uh, conduct in the present that comes from being a son now. Remember we talked about that already, not yet tension that exists in the Sermon on the Mount? A quote from a commentator helped me here. Disciples are not to be content with what they are, but to become or to be increasingly God's children, to emulate God, to imitate him more and more and more in our lives. It is not only that they act in love to show what they are now, that's true, but they also go on to become what they are not yet. This does not mean that they qualify for membership in the family by their deeds, but rather they continually progress in the service of God, end quote. Another commentator said it this way, that we might really be in act what we have been made in fact, sons and daughters of the Father. That's really good. That kind of sums it up. That ye may be the sons of your Father in heaven. We might become, we might really be in act what we've been made in fact, sons and daughters of the Father. Of course, it is still in the future tense, showing that the final result of what has already begun in the present is going to occur in the future. So if we are truly sons of God, we will be like him. We will exhibit his characteristics. We will have his character. We will have the spirit of the Father in us, and his likeness is to be seen in us. That you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Verse 46. There should be a differentiation between us and others in how we act. And that's in verse 46. Jesus asks two rhetorical questions here. For if you love them who love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the tax collectors the same. Now, what do you know about tax collectors? Jesus chose this group of people for a reason. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. And he would have been familiar with the hatred of others towards him. You see, the reputation of tax collectors in Palestine in the first century was extremely bad. Their conduct, their profession was despised. There was only one other group of people that the Jews hated more, and that was the Gentiles. And they're mentioned in the next verse. There were no more wicked people than the tax collectors, as a class. Now, there may have been some good ones among there, but as a class, as a group of people, there were no more wicked people than the tax collectors. Tax collectors were not allowed in the synagogue. They could not worship with their countrymen. Tax collectors could not give testimony in a court of law. They could not be a witness for you. That's how bad they were viewed in the time of Christ. You see, the Roman government used what we would call a tax farming system there in Palestine. Rome would specify the amount to be collected from a certain area, and they would appoint a man to gather that specified amount. That man would appoint others under him, and those men might appoint others under them to collect the taxes. Remember, Zacchaeus was one of the chief tax collectors. It means he was one of the ones higher up on the ladder, if you would. Each appointed man had to meet his quota. Now get this. His pay was whatever he could gather over the specified amount. So, for instance, if Larry had to pay the tax of $100 and I was the tax collector, if I wanted to eat that week, I would charge him $125. 
And so they, their pay was whatever they could gather over what the specified amount was. And so you can imagine that there was a lot of bribery, a lot of corruption, a lot of extortion going on, all the way up the ladder. The Jewish tax collectors were despised and hated men. I mean, we hate to pay taxes. But to think that this tax collector, you know, he's only supposed to collect $100 from me, but he's asking me to pay $150 this week. Last week was $125. Well, his car broke down. Went all the way up the ladder. They were despised and they were hated. They would be doubly hated because they came into contact with those Roman Gentiles. And it made them unclean. And they were working for the very foreign oppressors who had invaded their land. They were considered traitors. And tax collectors and sinners were often mentioned in one breath. And you see that in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Matthew eleven nineteen, Matthew 21, 31. Mark 2, 15 to 16. Luke 5, 30. Luke 7, 34. Luke 15, 1. Luke 19, 7. Often in the same verse, tax collectors and sinners. Or harlots and tax collectors. Often, over and over again, in the same breath, these people were mentioned together. But you know what? Even these hated and despised men who were, according to others, low and disgusting, they even had friends. Could have been more than likely other tax collectors, maybe others. But as a class, the tax collectors were degenerate men with very little conscience. And so notice, with that kind of background, notice the verse again. For if you love them who love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the tax collectors the same. Jesus is asking us a rhetorical question. How are we different from others if we only love those who love us? How are we different from the tax collectors if we love only our friends, our family, our church acquaintances? To behave in a loving way to only those who can return that love is being no better than the tax collectors which were hated, despised, could not go into the synagogue, were considered unclean, and could not give testimony in the court of law. In other words, if you only love those who love you, it is to be no different than these tax collectors. And, you know, as soon as the scribes and the Pharisees heard that, Jesus is saying, you're not doing anything special. You're not doing anything special. We refuse, if we refuse to love our enemies and love only those who love us, we have put ourselves on the same moral and spiritual level with the very people we despise. And of course, the rhetorical question expects a yes answer. Yes, the tax collectors do the same. They love those who love them. And the answer to the other question is that there will be no reward. For if you love them who love you, what reward have ye? None. Do not even the tax collectors the same? Yes, they love those who love them. Then Jesus goes on. If you greet your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the heathen, the same? Of course, we've already talked about the Jewish attitude towards the Gentiles. Keep in, your, keep in mind that in, in most cases, except for those who were converted to Judaism to became Jews, Gentiles were idolaters. And God hates idolatry. And so you can 
understand at least a little bit the Jewish people, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, they felt that that gave them the warrant to hate the Gentiles because God hates idolatry. Hence, he must hate the Gentiles. And the Gentiles had suffered immensely at the hand of the Gentiles. The Jewish people had suffered at the hands of the Gentiles in exile. So you can understand why they would make a differentiation and say, you know, hate, hate your enemies. The Romans, and at this time, at the time of Christ, were the Jewish enemies. The Romans were Gentiles. They were oppressing them, trying to lead them astray religiously. Hence, what Karen said in Sunday school, they had erected all of these laws to keep them from going into idolatry, lest they be kicked out of the land again. Pious Jews hated the Gentiles regarded them as unclean, called them dogs, would not eat with them. And, of course, the Gentiles hated the Jews as well. Wouldn't that have been a fun time to be living? There were these separate groups. You had the Jews, the pious, self-righteous Jews. You had the Gentiles, a little bit below them in the mind of the Jews were the tax collectors, and then a little bit below them would have been the Samaritans, which were half-breeds, according to the Jewish people. And these groups did not mix, and there was enough hatred to go around. And each group loved within its own group, and each group greeted those within their own group. So it says here, and if you greet your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the heathen. So we think, what well, would it have been no problem to go up and just shake somebody's hand like we do today? That's not the kind of greeting we're talking about here. Greeting says a lot to the person that you're greeting, especially in that day if it includes a wish for one's well-being, which was common among the people of Christ's day. Greetings in that day included a blessing for one's welfare. Jewish greeting was peace, which was really a prayer. So according to Oriental manners, a greeting was a sign of kind feelings towards another. And greetings were elaborate. They showed respect, and they were given as such, much different than our greetings today. The Jews generally did not salute or greet the Gentiles. Kind of give you, give you an idea of some of the greetings that were around in those days. Just take a look at the letters of the Apostle Paul. And his, the opening of most of his letters is a greeting, many times doctrinally rich, but they were a greeting. And Jesus is asking us, how are we different from the Gentiles if we ignore some people and only wish those well that are close to us? The common teaching in that day did not make them any different than others. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Greet only those within your group. Love only those that you're acquainted with or can love you back. What Jesus is saying is there's no reward for acting just like others, for doing the commonplace, what is accepted. That does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It does not make us any different than others. So the implication here is that those who obey this or in general follow the teaching of Christ will be rewarded. Again, it says, you know, what do ye more than the others? Do not even the heathen so. Uh, what reward have ye? If we follow this teaching of Christ, there's going to be reward. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking forward to reward as long as that's not our motivation. Moses looked forward in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. 
Even Jesus in Hebrews 12, too, looked forward to reward as well. So what Jesus is saying, if you are only loving those who love you and only greeting your brethren only, let's bring it into terms we can understand, only greeting other members of the church, other people who are attending with us, we're no different. We're doing nothing exceptional. Acting this way shows that we're no better than those that we think we might be far above. Tax collectors and the heathen, they're far below us, morally and spiritually. Folks, think about how devastating these words of Jesus would have been to the scribes and the Pharisees, how insulting it would have been to them. I've been trying to paint the picture. It's difficult. You do all this reading, you try to you know, put your mind in that mindset. Basically, Jesus is saying this, your love is no different than those that you despise. You have the same self-centered love that is common among the tax collectors and Gentiles whom you think you are superior to. The teaching that you are following does not rise any higher than the standard of society. That's a whole sermon right there in and of itself. That we, as God's people, members of the kingdom of God, citizens, I should say, of the kingdom of God, should be living on a higher plane than the standards of society. We should not stoop to the low standards of society. We need to stand out in this world, this dark world, and as the world gets darker, those who shine are going to look like they're shining brighter. Followers of Jesus Christ, those in the kingdom, are unique. We are a special kind of person and live according to the righteous requirements of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we should be different than our enemies. God requires us to be different. And we need to be doing more than others. Go the second mile. Do what others cannot love their enemies. Not to love our enemies is to actually become like them or act like them. And so we're to be like our fathers, not like others. Be like our father, not fathers. Be like our father in heaven. Verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your father who is in heaven is perfect. Now this could be a conclusion to the whole section on how our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and their teaching. Notice the word heaven. Brother Stephen mentioned this morning we sometimes forget how high and lofty and lifted up God is. Heaven stresses that the Father is different than others, far above, high above us. And Jesus, is, through these six subjects, has taught and explained a righteousness where God is the standard. We're not to look to any men as our standard of conduct. We're to look to God himself. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. As followers of Jesus Christ, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are meant, we are destined, and God is working to make us like him. In fact, the primary goal of your Christian life is to become Christ-like. That's the primary goal. Everything that God brings into your life is destined to conform you. Its purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. We are to be holy because God is holy. We are to be perfect with the Lord our God. We are to imitate God. And we are called to be holy and without blame. 
Leviticus 19.2, Deuteronomy 18.13, Leviticus 11.44, and Leviticus 20 and verse 7, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. If you didn't get all those, listen to the recording on the website. It is being recorded, right, Steve? Notice here, be ye therefore perfect. That ye is emphatic in the Greek, meaning Christ's disciples in contrast to others. We are to do this. We are to be different from the others. We are to be like God. Now that word perfect is sometimes misunderstood. The idea behind perfect means wholeness. It's not talking about sinless perfection. It's talking about moral perfection. Why try to be perfect? Simple answer. Because God commands it. The idea of being perfect means full development. Growth into maturity of godliness. Actually, the word can be literally translated, having attained the end. Something is perfect when it has finally or fully attained that which it was designed for. Jesus is calling on us to be mature people, attaining the end for which God has made us, to be Christ-like. To be brought to completion, full-grown, if you would, lacking nothing. Our lives being totally conformed to God's revealed way of living. In my ministry down in Lewistown and in my ministry here as I preach, I have one goal, to give God's word in such a way that he uses it in your lives to conform you to the image of Christ. I will have done my job if at the end of my ministry, whenever that may be, people can come up to me and say, I grew as a result of your sermons. It's not because of me. Every time I drive here in the morning, I ask God to use this imperfect vessel to accomplish his, his purpose in your lives. And that purpose is be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. God is the standard. Of course, we know that this is not achievable in this life completely. doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it, but it's something we should continually strive for. And keep this in mind, it is not possible in and of by ourselves. It's possible through the application of the Word of God, through the Spirit of God in our lives, and much prayer. God does give the power and ability to do this. Philippians 3.12 Not that I have already attained, Paul said, or am already perfected. Paul said, I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. A constant striving towards Christ-likeness. This is what we should be striving for. And we should not be satisfied with halfway obedience. The question this morning is this. How much more are you like Jesus Christ today than the day you were saved? Can you point to some specific things that God has done in your life to conform you to the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Folks, this kind of love, loving your enemies, loving those who will never love us back, greeting those who never would probably greet us, this kind of love is possible for the believer. 
Because Romans 5.5 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This kind of love is a fruit of the Spirit. And it is possible for the believer. In fact, the Bible says that God is working to perfect that love in us. And as we apply his word to our lives, according to 1 John 2.5, his love is perfected in us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. This kind of love is possible for us by God's help. And it's this kind of love that proves that we belong to Christ. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. This love that Jesus has been talking about in this section of Scripture enables people to see Christ in us. As we imitate our Father, people will see Christ in us. Now, we don't do this to change the people. We do this to display to them the love of God. You know, even unsaved people seem to know that to live as Christ has commanded us to live and to follow his teachings, they all seem to know that it requires a power from above because they recognize it goes against human nature. And so often it is said by those who are unsaved that they want what the believer has. They seem to recognize that there's something that we have that they don't that gives us the ability to do what we are able to do by Christ. J. Oswald Sanders said, The master expects from his disciples such conduct as can be explained only in terms of the supernatural. How do people come to know Christ? They come to know Christ by reading the gospel according to you. They come to know Christ in the Bible and through our lives as we live out the Bible in front of them. Many of them will never read the Bible, but they will look at and read your life. In fact, you are the closest that some may ever come to Christ. And so they must see Christ in us. Our enemies are not usually the ones who are threatening us to the point of death. No, sometimes our enemies are just ordinary people. Ordinary people in our lives who are mean, impatient, critical, judgmental, self-righteous, spiteful, or simply those who disagree with us. And believe it or not, some of your enemies may even be those who claim to be believers. And that's sad. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones asked this question. As you examine your activities and look at your life in detail, can you claim for it that there is something about it which cannot be explained in ordinary terms and which can only be explained in terms of a relationship with God? The demands are high because the stakes are high. Let me read for you an illustration that James Montgomery Boyce put in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Hopefully I can get through this. Some time ago I read a story in one of the books of Dr. H.A. Ironside that illustrates this graphically. Once when, once when Ironside was in Ganoda, Arizona, at a Presbyterian mission hospital there, he met a poor Navajo woman who had been nursed back to health 
through the consecrated work of a Christian doctor and the Navajo nurses. She had been cast out by her own people when they thought she was going to die and was found after three or four days of exposure. After nine weeks in the hospital, she received enough, uh, she recovered enough to begin to wonder about the unexpected care she had received. So she said to one of the nurses, I can't understand it. Why did the doctor do all that for me? He's a white man. I'm an Indian. I never heard of anything like this before. So the Navajo nurse, a Christian, said to her, you know, it is the love of Christ that made him do that. And so she said, who is this Christ? Tell me more about him. The nurse called a missionary to explain the gospel. The staff began to pray. Several weeks passed. Then a day came when she was asked, can't you trust this Savior? Turn from the idols you were worshiping and trust him as the son of the living God. As the Navajo woman pondered her answer, the door opened, the doctor stepped in. The face of the old woman lit up. She said, if Jesus is anything like the doctor, I can trust him forever. And she accepted Christ as her savior. Do you see what it was that reached her? It was love. Love that worked outside of the bounds of racism. Love that worked outside of the bounds of the neighbor-enemy designation. It was love. And that is what you and I are called forth to do in an ungodly and rebellious world. And we are to do it because we are the sons of our Father who is in heaven. Let's do it. Father, please help us and give us the strength and ability to do what you have commanded us to do. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Stephen.